I want to go ahead and turn our attention to Matthew chapter 7. And so if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 27 this morning. We're going to be reading verses 57 through 66. And Irene, our dear sister, is going to come up and read for us out of God's word. And would you please stand with me out of respect for his word as Irene leads us this morning. Irene, pass it off to you. Good morning, church. Matthew 27, 57, 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Amrathia named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first time. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Church, this is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Irene. Pray with me. Father, we come to this moment where we fix our eyes upon something that you set in motion before the foundations of the earth. Something that happened 2,000 years ago and yet has profoundly affected the lives of millions of people. Something that happened that, that has been given to us to give us tremendous hope even the, in the midst of the darkest of moments of our lives. And Father, I, I sit and or stand here this morning and I am fully aware that I do not have words to do justice to the glory of the death and resurrection of your son. And so I pray for your help this morning. I pray, Father, for your spirit to just open up eyes that, um, to, to see the beautiful wonder and glory of what you have done for us. Father, that we would be encouraged in our hearts, that we'd be spurred on to, 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 to zeal and to just love you and your son all the more. So pray, Father, that you would please do that work in us today. Father, we give the time to you. We pray your help. We are dependent upon you to not only speak through me, but to do the work in each of us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Two men, Louis and Phil, this isn't a joke, sounds like it. But Louis and Phil, they'd been floating on the open ocean for 47 days after their plane had gone down in May of 1943. This is a story of Louis Zampernini. Maybe if you read the book um, called Unbroken. I can't imagine the feeling of day after day for 47 days wondering what is in store for me tomorrow. More sun, more hunger, more thirst, more waves, more hopelessness. 47 days. 
And at the end of that 47 days, they see something on the horizon, a small bump, a piece of land, a group of islands. And as they near their hope, this new hope, the sky breaks open. A sudden slashing rain came down and the islands, they vanished. The ocean began heaving and thrashing. The wind slapped the raft in one direction, then another, sending it spinning up swells, perhaps 40 feet, then careening down into troughs as deep as canyons. Wave after wave slammed into the raft, tipping it sideways and peeling it upward on the verge of overturning. They knew that if they were thrown out, they would never make it back. And so they tied themselves to the raft, just hoping to hold on. Then night fell, and the storm continued to pound. For every disciple who had followed Jesus, Mary, Martha, the twelve, and countless other nameless followers, this is how they must have felt just a few short days after Palm Sunday. I mean, Palm Sunday, what, what an amazing thing. I mean, talk about the, the bump on the horizon, this moment of hope. You're like, okay, everything's about to change for us. They see their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus, get on a donkey and head into Jerusalem. And everyone knew what that meant. They all knew what that meant. That the one had come, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that was here to save them. And it's not just that day. These disciples, these 12 and so many of the other followers, they had been with Jesus for three years. They had seen him heal. They had seen him teach with authority. He'd made the lame walk. He'd healed the blind. He'd made the deaf hear. Like They had seen all of this. They'd seen him go against the religious authorities of the day. They had seen him stand up against all of these things, all of their hopelessness. All that they had waited for was finally here in him. And that Palm Sunday was the culmination of those three years for the disciples. That's why they were singing Hosanna, because they felt like, man, this salvation of God has come. I wonder if they had the same feeling that Louis and Phil had when they recognized that island beginning to draw near. But, just like with Phil and Louis, a storm arose. And suddenly their hope what they'd put their stock in, the man they had followed for three years, he's arrested. And suddenly he is hung on a tree, a curse, and he is killed. The island vanished in front of them. The island vanished in front of the storm. Their hope vanished. And we don't often think about the days between Jesus' death and resurrection. But we need to remember that the disciples, they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. They weren't gathered together in a room counting down the moments until Jesus' bodily resurrection came forward, any more than you or I would have been doing in those days. Every hope that they had in Jesus was that of a Jesus who would stay alive, a Jesus who would restore Israel, a Jesus who would put down the religious leaders, a Jesus who would put down the other nations and make Israel the nation on top of them all. His disciples, they weren't under some faulty or gullible, simplistic impression that maybe Jesus was still alive, that he didn't really die from the cross. They knew way better than you and I do the brutality of crucifixion. They had taken down his body. They had seen countless crucifixions along the side of the road. They had felt 
his lifeless body. Dead was dead. And we often don't realize that for us, in 2022, we have a bigger category for the resurrection because of Jesus than the disciples would have ever had. They weren't thinking these things. Some of them may have believed in a vague idea of resurrection, but even for them in the Old Testament, they, they thought maybe that was a resur- resurrection at the end of times, not in their lifetime. Yes, they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but even that, I'm not sure they fully understood. And certainly, it's different now because the one who had raised Lazarus was the one who was dead. I can't imagine any of the disciples sitting around and saying like, hey guys, just wait until Jesus comes back. They would have laughed at that idea. It would have seemed ridiculous to them. Scripture clearly shows the disciples were not expecting chapter 2 of Jesus' life. Mary and Martha, when they go to the empty tomb, their first response was to weep and to wonder who stole the body. Night to be saying, yes, we knew it was going to happen. Luke tells us they were perplexed. And even after an angel had told them what was happening, and they run to the disciples, we see how the disciples respond to Mary and Martha's account of an angel telling them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Look what they say. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Does this sound like a group of disciples who are waiting for the resurrection of Jesus? No, they hear the women come and say, like, he, he, he's actually alive. And, and, and they look at them and they say, like, you're telling us fibs. It's an idle tell. Like you don't know what you're talking about. We don't believe you. And then even after Jesus appears to some of the disciples, poor Thomas. Like, you ever feel like getting left out? Thomas wasn't there. I mean, this is like FOMO, like right here in the scriptures. Oh, for those of you who don't know what that means, that means fear of missing out. That's something that uh, kids do now with like texts and things like that. But this is the ultimate fear of missing out. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appears. And look what his response was. Even after his disciples, his dear friends, and Mary and Martha have told them or told him what they saw. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Does this sound like a disciple who's waiting for the resurrection of Jesus? See, we miss that for them, like this was the darkest of days. And can we really blame them? Like, can we really blame them for for questioning someone who is dead coming back to life again? Why does this matter? Why does it matter for us to be mindful of this vanished hope for the disciples? Well, here's why it matters. And I think Paul Miller in his book, The J-Curve, has a great statement that helps illuminate this for us. It's the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's that long pause between death and resurrection that is often the hardest. And this is where faith needs to be the strongest, isn't it? Where faith needs to be the strongest. This is the, the great dark between And it matters because some of us are experiencing these types of feelings and these types of moments right now in our lives. And if you're not, at some point you will. 
Some experience will come along and it will feel like your hope completely vanishes. It's the days after something that you love is lost. The day that something is, is permanently removed from your grasp. The days before you see any restoration, before you see any kind of newness. Maybe it's the loss of a spouse. Maybe it's the loss of a parent. Maybe it's the loss of a child. Maybe it's the physical pain of getting up every day and there's the pain again and again and again and again. The bondage of an addiction to alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, crushing debt that you experience in your life, a miserable job that you go to every single day, the relationship that left you betrayed and hurt and feeling like you're never going to be good enough to be loved, a hopeless war that's full of death and pain, economic woes, sickness, cancer, COVID, changes of life. And we all know, of course, not all of life feels this way. But none of us dream about the painful moments that we're going to experience as kids. And yet they always come. But nonetheless, we'll have experiences of moments of hope and promise unexpectedly shifting our lives Times and seasons where hope feels, though, that it can be at risk. It had to feel at risk for the disciples. I mean, they didn't just completely disband. They still were talking and thinking. And I wonder what it was like during those moments between Jesus' death and his resurrection. Did they talk? Did, did they talk about it? Did they go, what happened? What did we miss? Did he say something that we didn't catch? Did we, did we interpret something wrong? Like, is, is there something going to come after him? Was, was he the one that was going to prepare the way for the real Messiah? Like, I imagine their worlds were just spinning. But then, out of nowhere, three days later, something changes everything. And a light cracks through the darkness, something that is unbelievably brilliant and unexpected. And it is a world-changing reality. Jesus appears alive. As I'm preparing sermons every Easter, I recognize that statements like that just pass through our ears like a worn-out song we've heard a million times. A statement that for a lot of us, we can quickly just accept and not actually stop to ponder what it means and how crazy that sounds. Jesus appears alive. Brothers and sisters, this doesn't happen. Dead people don't come back to life. Death is the most permanent thing that we experience in our lives. If someone had come to you and, and shows you a video of someone that you know had passed away and says, look, they're alive, you would know that either that's a fake or you would assume they're crazy or it was taken before. We all know that Elvis isn't around anymore, and neither is Tupac. Like, we know it. No matter what anybody says, they're gone, and nothing is going to convince us of the reality that that's not the case. Many haven't grown up just believing that Jesus raised from the dead. And for them to hear this declaration and statement as if it's fact, man, it just seems foolish. Something must have happened to trick these people. Surely they didn't really see Jesus rise from the dead. Surely they were wrong. Maybe they're just simpletons. 
They're just spiritually mystic people who didn't have the knowledge of science, and so they believe in this crazy thing of people coming uh, to life after the dead. Listen, that's not the case because people in the first century didn't believe in the resurrection. Even within Judaism, there was a division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection at all, and the Pharisees believed in one, but they didn't know what it was going to look like, and they knew it was something that was going to happen at the end of ages. Not now. Not in the middle of our lives. And say, well, what about the Greeks? The Greeks didn't believe in a resurrection either. None of the Gentiles did. All of the Romans, all of the Mesopotamians, all of the people of first century days didn't believe that people came back from the dead. They believed that you became a shade, that you might go up into heaven and be a, a light in the star. In fact, what's crazier is that for most Greeks, or at least many Greeks, the idea of coming back to the body after you've died was a punishment, not something to look forward to. These weren't simpletons who believed in resurrection. These weren't mystic people who believed that people came up from the dead all the time. They were deeply, deeply aware of the reality of death. They saw it. They knew it. They knew its permanence. They knew its inescapability, probably far more than you and I do. How many siblings did first century families watch pass away before they hit the age of five? How many crucifixions did people walk by going into Jerusalem as Rome tried to tell everybody, this is what happens to you if you step up against Rome? Are we going to guard our kids' eyes from violence? They had to walk by this stuff. Death was real. It was inescapable, and it was horrible, and they saw it, and they knew it. And they knew what it was. Even for those who did hope in a resurrection... Jesus being dead for three days, that was evidence that it wasn't going to happen. Because in Jewish tradition, the soul would stay with the body for three days, but then afterwards it would depart. And there was no way to bring that back together again. And yet, it's interesting that after that day, Resurrection and the idea of bodily resurrection began to spread throughout the Roman world and all into Mesopotamia. What would have possibly changed so quickly? Could it be that Jesus raised from the dead? That he actually bodily, historically raised from the dead and that that could change an entire culture and how they view the idea of dead all the way up into 2022? What could possibly generate such a thing? Well, how about a, a bunch of witnesses? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 says, Then Jesus, he, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. See, here's the thing about this. Myths don't tell people to check the facts, do they? Like if I'm making up a story about Jesus raising up from the dead bodily, you don't go say, go ask the 500 non-disciples that saw him alive. Go, go check it out. Go, go test it. Go ask. Like, I get it. This is crazy. People don't raise from the dead. Paul would just say, I didn't even believe that he raised from the dead until he knocked me off a donkey in the, on the road to Damascus. He'd say, go, go check this out. 
We understand why it's so hard for you to believe, but these people saw it, and I know it's crazy, but this changes everything. And though it happened 2,000 years ago, we, need, we still need to ponder the reality of this fact and what it means for us. If it's true, then death, as permanent as it feels, isn't permanent. There is something real and tangible that's going to come to follow. A new life. Not just the hope of a new life, but a new life that we can expect because we've seen the first fruits of it already in Jesus' resurrection. Amen? Like if He did it, He can do it for us. If He has a bodily resurrection, then we can hope for a bodily resurrection, which we're going to talk about what it means to have a resurrection like His next week. Jesus died. His life ended. He faced the same permanence of death that we do. But he was able to actually return his spirit to his physical body, to heal it, to restore it, to make it new, bringing it back to life, and a permanent life that can never be ended again. And if he did it for himself, that is the proof that he can do the same thing for you and for me. So here's the thing. If we believe this, this one core fact, if you believe this, that Jesus bodily, historically rose from the dead and he's still alive in physical form today, then no matter how wonderful life is right now or how much it feels like the night has fallen around you and how hopeless it looks with your eyes or how you feel like your raft may be tossing around and turning and the wind ripping, whipping around you, you have hope because Jesus is still there. He's still alive, even if you can't see him. That bump on the horizon hasn't been moved just because the darkness of the storm seems to make it invisible. It's still there. Remember Louis and Phil? One last excerpt from that book. In the dark, they could smell the soil, the greenness, rain washing over living things. It was the smell of land. It flirted with them all night, growing stronger. And as the dawn neared, they could hear the hiss of water scurrying the reef. They had drifted into the embrace of two small islands. Jesus, in his resurrection, is the island of our hope. In the dark, the reality of a historical, real, and bodily resurrection is like the smell of soil and greenness. It is like the smell of land, reminding us, reminding you, reminding me that hope is never gone. Hope is never gone because Jesus can never be moved and because Jesus can never be threatened by death again. Even when we can't feel it, the resurrection is the aroma of hope. And for all of you who are in Jesus, whether you're in the middle of the night or you're entering into one of those seasons or you've yet to enter into one of those seasons, we must be reminded that the dawn will come. We will find that we haven't just drifted towards our hope, but our hope has brought us in and embraced us through the cross.
It isn't just, we haven't just haphazardly drifted to Jesus. Jesus came to us that he would die on the cross. He knew what he was doing when he entered into Jerusalem that day. And he knew he was going to suffer that death because he knew he would rise again. And he knew that by faith in him, he would give us his righteousness and he would promise to us the same kind of resurrection that he had. Jesus knew. What a hope we have. And what an embrace we look to have when we see our hope realized in Jesus one day. What a great day that will be. For those who don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus, I simply ask you to ponder what has been said. Why don't you just ponder, could it be real? What could change history? What could change people who didn't believe and suddenly make them believe? What could change an entire cultural and world outlook on the afterlife? What could change an entire cultural understanding of resurrection? What could change that unless something real and profound and physical happened on those days? I ask you to ponder that. We as Christians don't believe on a whim or on blind faith, but on something that was real and so drastically changed the world that it still affects people today as it ripples throughout history. For you who don't believe, what hope do you have? What dawn are you waiting for? What dawn are you waiting for? It's just simply not going to give away to another night. I believe with all my heart that Jesus died. And I believe with all my heart that he was raised again on the third day, not as some ghostly apparition, but as a physical man who ate and drank and walked and talked and I think hugged and laughed with his disciples. The first resurrection of its kind. Just think about that. The first resurrection of its kind ushering in a life and a kingdom that will never end. And my dawn and the dawn of every other person who knows Jesus Christ is going to be a resurrection like his. To see his face. What an amazing day that will be. So I want you to consider this. If you don't believe in the resurrection... And that's been the thing that's kept you from Jesus for all of these years. I ask you to ponder on this, this Easter season, ask you to ponder, could it be real? And if it is real, what does that mean for you? Friend, there's hope for you. There's hope that you don't have to be fearful of death and you don't have to be fearful of what is to come. There's hope for you. And Jesus' resurrection is that hope. If you're in this room and you're a believer, and maybe you have that hope in Jesus, but man, you feel like you're in that raft and you feel like I'm, I'm, I'm at risk of losing my hope, I would just say to you, hold on. Hold on. There is no temptation, no trial, no testing that you will experience 
that is not common to all, and he will not allow that to go on in such a way that causes you to lose your faith. Hold on to Jesus. The dawn will break. Because he hasn't moved any more than those islands moved. And he still holds you, and he still has you, and he still promises safety for you, and he still died and rose from the dead for you. If right now you look at your life, and man, you're in water, it feels calm, and the sun is shining, and all is well, just remember that this, that wonderful gift of God, that's still not your island of hope. Because sooner or later, your circumstances will change. Your island of hope is Jesus and his resurrection and his resurrection alone. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we are all to be pitied most among men because we have put our hope, our hope in a lie. But how many of you believe that Jesus is alive? I do. And so our hope is alive. Our hope is real. Our hope is secure. And as we close this morning, I want to turn our attention to a time of, of, of communion. And the reason why I think this is such an important thing to move right into this right now is because the, the purchase for our hope is represented by this symbol. But not only the purchase of our hope is represented by this symbol, but the reality that Jesus said when he instituted this symbol that we are as the church to gather together every single week and to remember this moment that Jesus says, I'm not going to eat of this again until I eat it with all of you in heaven. What, what, a, what, what an amazing reminder this is for us. That not only is your hope secure because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, as he allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilt for us on our behalf, that our sins would be paid for by his work. But we have the hope that he's not done. He's not done. He's coming back. And he's not coming back, friends, to just give us some eternal life in the spiritual realm where we float around and sing songs like little baby angels. He's coming back to install a new earth and a new heaven with a new people who have new bodies that are physical that will never end and never have the threat of death again. That's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. And at the inauguration of that day, we will sit at the table with Jesus again. So this is a reminder. As so a church, take the bread. I want you to just hold it in your hand and I want you to just take a moment of stillness and silence and ponder what it means that he died for your sins. And if there is unconfessed and unrepented sin in your life, lay it before him now trust the sufficient work of Jesus on the cross and abide in his love for you in these moments. Name it specifically to him and say, I confess my whatever.
church, take this bread now. And as a body of faith, all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, take and eat of the bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. And now open your cups. And take and look at this juice that is a symbol of the promise. A covenant sealed by this blood, by his blood. It is sure, it is steadfast, Nothing can separate those who are his from the love of Jesus Christ. Father, may we more deeply grasp your love for us. I pray, Father, for those this morning that don't know your love for them, that they would understand your love for them, that they would, uh, they would grasp it and it would break them and that they would be willing to lay down their lives and their sins that they might find salvation. But Father, for those of us who know you, deepen our understanding of your love. How deep and wide and and long it is. Nothing separates us from the love of Jesus. And so church now, take of this juice and be reminded of the blood of Christ that was spilled for you.